Welcome to the Lend Academy podcast, episode number 278. This is your host, Peter Renton, founder of Lend Academy and co-founder of Lend at Fintech. Today's episode is sponsored by Lendit Fintech Digital, the new online community for financial services innovators. Today's challenges are extraordinary, with the upheaval affecting all areas of finance. More than ever before, we need to come together as an industry to learn from each other and make sense of this new world. Join Lendit Fintech Digital to connect and learn all year long from your peers and from the fintech experts. Sign up today at digital.lendit.com. Today on the show, I'm delighted to welcome James Paris. He is the CEO of Avant. Now, Avant has been around for a long time. We've had Al Goldstein, the previous CEO, and one of the co-founders on the show a couple of times. But James has been in the the job for about a year now, so I wanted to bring him on just to get an update on the business, what they're doing. They've they've expanded into into some new areas. We uh, lost touch with credit cards. We go into that in some depth. We talk about the impact of the pandemic. We talk about the capital market side of the business. Also, the the Colorado decision earlier this year that affirmed the bank partnership model that was really important. Uh, We talk about uh, the financial health of their customers and much more. It was a fascinating interview. Hope to enjoy the show. Welcome to the podcast, James. Peter, thank you. Great to be here today. Okay, my pleasure. So, you know, I like to get these things started by giving the listeners a bit of background. You've had an interesting career to date. Uh, why don't you give the, the listeners some of the highlights uh, before Avant? Yeah, absolutely. So um, maybe I'll start, you know, sort of how I got to Avant in... Um, kind of in the shortest possible way, which is that I knew the original, one of the original founders and CEO, uh, Al Goldstein, for I guess probably 15 years at the point in time when I joined the company, because for me anyway, life came full circle. Uh, Al started out working for me in our analyst program at Deutsche Bank when he graduated University of Illinois. And uh, I had the pleasure of going back to work for him in uh, the summer of 2015 at Avant. So I had been an attorney, I had been doing investment banking, and specifically a lot of work around capital markets and funding transactions. So when I originally came to Avant, it was to help the business set up around capital and funding, including the equity raise that we did in the fall of 2015, and then putting together the programs that the company uses with credit facilities and securitizations and loan sales, and and then sort of went in a handful of other directions after that around kind of broader strategic things we were working on. Right, right. Okay. Okay. So then uh, you've been in Avant, you've sort of been in, in, in several different roles there over the years, and uh, you're also at the sister company Amount. But why don't you tell us, you know, how, how do you describe Avant today? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Happy to do that. I think it's a great question. And maybe I'll touch a little bit on Amount too and give a little sure. bit of history as well for folks. So Avant was founded about seven and a half years ago, almost eight years ago now, really with the mission of trying to supply responsible, transparent credit products to the near prime uh, middle-class consumer in the U.S. And, you know, this was back in sort of the early part of 2013, the, the financial crisis was still, you know, relatively close in historical proximity. And what we were finding was just that banks that had traditionally been able to support these these customer categories really were not. And 
while we had started to see others making inroads around prime consumers, we didn't see as much in the near prime space uh, in particular. And we liked that because we thought that although the banks had a big problem with technology in terms of their ability to deliver things digitally, that ultimately they, they would be able to close that gap and that we'd have a really tough time competing with their cost of capital, even if we had great technology, because it'd be hard for us to, to compete with them around rates on credit products. So hence our focus on the near prime category. We also, a little bit different from some others, were focused on building our own balance sheet uh, because we thought that would provide a lot of stability and consistency in times of either capital market disruption or broader economic disruption, which certainly we've seen quite a bit of, you know, in 2020 with COVID. And again, that's a strategy that we thought the near prime space supported well, because there's a bit more yield in that category with excess spread to fund yourself in the, in the wholesale capital markets. Along the way, as we were thinking about how to best serve customers in that category, we started to work and approach banks with the idea of partnering in different ways so that we could serve their near prime customers. Because of course, banks you know, may have deposit customers ranging sort of the full gamut of the credit right. spectrum, as opposed to just the prime and super prime that they wanted to lend to. So when we were kind of engaged in a lot of those discussions, what we discovered was really the banks did want to be able to deliver that experience and those options to customers, but they wanted to be able to do it themselves. And that was really where the idea behind the amount business right. started to take form, which was the technology that we had developed uh, within Avant, which was really leading in terms of a number of things, not just underwriting, but also around fraud prevention, account verification, all of the things that are required to, to be done from a legal and, and regulatory standpoint, we had effectively automated with proprietary technology that you could use across different categories of both products and for different categories of consumers. There was nothing that was sort of, you know, required that the technology be applied in, in this near prime category. It would effectively work across the board. And so we started to build partnerships where we were putting together digital lending credit platforms uh, on a customized basis for banks, a number of which have been publicly uh, announced when Amount was still within the company, within Avant. And then at the beginning of 2020, on January 1st, we spun Amount out as a separate business. So Amount is a supplier to Avant of some of our back-end tech core technology, uh, the same way they are that they are for a number of banks like TD, PNC, Banco Popular, Regions Bank, and a, and a handful of others that, that have not been publicly announced yet. And so, um, you know, Avant today, back to your original question. So Amount is, you know, w- we thought that in pursuing that strategy, we'd give both businesses the opportunity to sort of achieve their, their potential because there's different considerations for both of the businesses. So um, split them apart. Today, Avant is really the consumer-facing credit business where we have a unsecured personal loan product, which was the sort of the original flagship product. We now have a second flagship product, uh, which looks like it's trending to be actually even quite a bit bigger than the loan product, which is our credit card product, where we're, we've been in market for nearly three years now and have over 300,000 active uh, customers, credit card customers on the platform. And then recently, we've launched an auto product where we're offering uh, loans secured by consumers' automobiles, and we have a longer-term strategy there of 
of building that into a um, kind of a multi-pronged auto product platform. Mm-hmm. And then in addition to that, we're making big investments in uh, point of sale technology and products as well in partnership uh, with Amount, uh, who's doing that with a number of, of uh, other institutions as well. So a lot going on, but effectively we're the consumer facing digital bank, although we don't have deposits yet. That's another thing we're, we're thinking hard about really for that near prime category. Right. And just, just to kind of round out the, the summary, you know, we've done, I think, seven or eight billion of um, unsecured personal loans. As I said, we're up over 300,000 credit card customers. I think we'll originate about uh, 240, 250,000 in 2020 and aiming toward uh, about an incremental 400,000 for next year in 2021. And uh, we're very excited about that growth uh, and still very excited about our lending business as well. It, it is also growing, but but not at the rate that the card business is. So sure, sure. So is the is the customer profile pretty similar for the cards and the and the loans? Well, it's a little bit different, and that's intentional. So for the for the loan product, the weighted average FICO, which is although we don't use it in underwriting, it's a good reference point that everybody's familiar with, is about six hundred and fifty, and the weighted average for the card product is about 625. So it's uh, slightly down market from the loan product. And that was intentional because we saw an opportunity in the market where uh, between kind of existing providers that sort of dabble in the near prime space, as well as prime kind of pulling back. And then another, another group that's quite a bit further down the spectrum into the subprime category, we saw a lot of white space between those two products. And so have positioned our product in that white space, seeing a lot of uh, growth and adoption and, and really excited about the direction that that's going. And in fact, this spring, kind of late Q1, early Q2, uh, we feel like we've got enough data and information that we'll, we'll be able to start cross-selling uh, the products in effectively in both directions where a credit card customer that's you know maybe more of an emer- an emerging upwardly trending credit profile where we've got great data on their their history with us with the credit card would be eligible for the loan products and um, and vice versa and so we're you know we're quite excited about the the opportunity for for cross selling the products and giving right. customers more of what they need. Right. Right. Okay. Okay. So maybe we can just uh, talk about uh, 2020 for a while and just. Uh, Give us some perspective about how, what the arc of, uh, of your experience has been, um, obviously, you know, from pre-COVID through COVID to today. Just give us a bit of a rundown, both on the, on the cards and the loan products. How, how, has it, how has demand been? How has performance been? That sort of thing. Yeah, sure. I'll just take them in turn. I'll start with loan and then, and then talk about credit cards. So, and then maybe a little bit on the overall business as well, because I think like so many others, we've been affected in, in a lot of different ways beyond just sort of products and, and performance. But on the loan side, uh, demand was hit really hard out of the gates when when COVID sort of first started to you know reveal how significant it was going to be back in early to mid-March, where you know effectively, as everyone knows, the country pretty rapidly started shutting down and um, you know people, consumers were really hunkered down. So you know, for several months, we saw savings rates, you know, much higher than what we would typically see in spending, you know, way, way down. And that also translated because I think if in effect at the consumer level, people's individual balance sheets, if you will, you know, kind of got stronger because of that savings and spending dynamic, the demand for loans fell pretty significantly. 
you know, our use case for why consumers borrow from us tends to range into a lot of different categories. It's not necessarily as simple as straight debt consolidation for customers in the near prime category. So some of it's access to credit, some of it's um, unexpected expenses that might be material. Some of it's, you know, maybe more discretionary in nature. And so certainly we saw demand fall significantly for our near prime categories, probably, you know, fell 70-ish percent kind of out of the gates. And we've seen that recover over the course of the summer and into the fall, but you know, it's still, at least for us, remains fairly subdued. I'd say it's, you know, it's down at least 30, 40% for our um, our category of borrowers. So we did a number of things along the way, both as it relates to, you know, tightening standards in the early days from an underwriting standpoint, all of which we've since effectively unwound. And that's really due to performance, which I'll touch on in a minute. The other thing that we did very aggressively, very quickly was around making a variety of effectively treatments available to borrowers who were, who were dealing with a hardship, including a newer option, which wound up becoming the primary option where we were able to customize a plan for a borrower based on sort of the specific hit to income level that they saw themselves affected with. And so you know, a number of things on the operational front that we did in order to sort of make uh, make borrowers, you know, very aware that they had options out there if they were dealing with with any uh, any issues. And I think similar to many others in the in the lending space, you know, what we've seen since then has been extremely good delinquency performance and extremely good performance of borrowers that did take some form of uh, of treatment or plan whether that was a forbearance plan or whether that ultimately was was a more significant payment plan that resulted in a reduction of, of payments for them as a result of their hardship. So we've seen just really, really strong uh, adherence to these plans, as well as very strong underlying delinquency performance for really the entire loan book. So as a result of that, the uh, delinquency levels are really as low as they've been in years. Although, you know, I think we're starting to see with some of the broader economic data that I think the whole market's focused on that, uh, you know, perhaps that will change as we get into 2021. I think a lot of that's going to depend on stimulus programs as well as the pace at which the various, you know, states and local uh, areas uh, open up and, you know, sort of, how, I think right now with last week's job report, we were at something like 6.7% unemployment, still somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 million or so jobs lower than where we were in February before the pandemic hit. So I think there's uh, some big questions about sort of how that last, you know, few hundred basis points of full employment, you know, how long it takes to get there and how that plays out. But, um, but we saw really strong performance on the loan front. On the credit card front, it's a little bit of a different story from the standpoint that while we did see a little bit of a dip in demand for the first few weeks after COVID hit, it resumed pretty quickly. And so we did see our level of issuance drop for a couple of months, but based on what we were seeing in terms of performance and all the indicators that we look at, we felt pretty good about the credit profiles. And so we leaned in a little bit more on the credit card side and had... Um, 
several months of record issuance and, and we're able to nearly make up what our original goal for the year had been, which was 250,000 cards. I think we'll wind up being just a little bit short of that, but a lot of that's sort of back, back end weighted after we sort of stepped on the gas on the credit card side. So, and similarly, you know, performance has really, really been strong. Delinquencies are very, very low. I'd say card utilization is also a little bit lower which means that you know average balances relative to the size of lines has come down from what we would typically see but that's also just very consistent with kind of a healthy individual balance sheet at the consumer level meaning that they're you know they've paid down debt levels overall including with the card product uh, so we see a really really healthy consumer in general and you know hope that that can continue but again a lot of the the broader national policies and state level policies are going to have a huge impact on right. how things play out in the broader economy. And, and that'll affect our business, you know, as well, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Understood. Understood. So maybe we can talk about the, the capital market side of the business, which I know you're, you're very familiar with having had that role previously. Who are you, who are you mainly using to fund the loans and, and, and the credit lines? I know that I saw recently you had a, uh, you extended your warehouse lines at JP Morgan and Waterfall. But tell us a little bit about how that side of the business is going right now. Yeah, sure. We have we have a few different credit facilities with different providers without, you know, without necessarily naming them. I would say we've got, you know, a mix of uh, you know, big banks in bankruptcy remote uh, facilities. We've also got um, uh, one with a with a large insurance company. All of our primary facilities, we extended effectively during the pandemic, extended out the maturities. In one of the cases, we significantly uh, increased the size of the facility because it's primarily financing the credit card business, which, as I had mentioned, you know, has been expanding very rapidly. So we've been very pleased with, um, you know, with our lenders and, and with the processes around extension and expansion there. And we've been watching the the uh, capital markets very closely. I think clearly there was a lot of disruption back in the spring, and then you know as additional data became available across, I think many many you know lenders in different categories, and you know the uh, the data sort of spoke for itself. I think the the strength that we're seeing in the consumer is something that's being broadly seen. We've seen a pretty significant recovery in the capital markets, so. You know, deals are getting done in our space. We have not done one recently in terms of a capital markets deal. We did one back in late February, early March, sort of right as uh, things were getting pretty wacky. And because of our substantial balance sheet capital, uh, ourselves, cash, and the facilities we have, we've got quite a bit of flexibility about when we come to market. So we're, we're sort of evaluating timing. I doubt we'll do something before the end of the year, but look to do something early in 2021 but the markets feel fine. If we, um, you know, if we, if we wanted to do something, we, we feel like the terms would be fine right now. It's just not a, not right. the right time for us. Right. What about on the credit card side? Are you going to go out uh, and do a securitization there? Yeah, I think we will. We haven't exactly nailed down the timing of when that will take place, but we've been contemplating that, you know, for many years. And so the financing structure that we have in place essentially contemplates that, uh, a typical kind of master trust structure that you often see in credit card securitizations in terms of being, you know, being set up in a way to, to facilitate moving in that direction. So that's something that I think we want to get a little bit more scale 
in the business, but it's something that I would expect we'll probably do our maiden offering in 2021. Right, right. Okay. Okay. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about the decision that happened in Colorado earlier this year that was, uh, you guys were part of that. The, you know, basically the state of Colorado, uh, you know, affirmed the bank partnership model. The OCC has since issued uh, their, their final rule on true lender. So maybe we could just start off with asking, like, how has this impacted your business uh, since then? Sure. Well, I think it's a it's a pretty big decision and and fairly far reaching from the standpoint that the Colorado case or cases which involved both ourselves and Marlette uh, in sort of independent cases, but that effectively we were you know were being worked through the system jointly, uh, which meant that we were coordinating to the extent that we could on some of the defense issues uh, because it was the first time that a state had really alleged this uh, true lender issue in any cases that involve lenders that exclusively lent below 36%. You know, historically, there'd been a handful of these cases, which, which all sort of revolved around deep, deep subprime lenders. And, and I think largely players that were perceived to be, you know, weak on regulatory considerations or, or maybe not great actors, that kind of thing, where you know, the uh, the doctrine around true lender was probably extended a little bit because of some of those some of those considerations, but it had never really been applied in, in a case like ours where, you know, we work incredibly closely with our issuing bank partner around the bank's policies and the practices and services that we perform. And it's, you know, it's highly structured and and monitored, and which which I think is fundamentally different than some of these other cases. So, in any event, what happened was that the state of Colorado ultimately agreed with us. As you know, after I think about three and a half years proceeding with the litigation, you know, we finally got into you know very, I guess, you know, deep aspects of the discovery there, including depositions. And I think as Colorado better understood our business, I think they were in a position to support it from the standpoint of helping craft a safe harbor that they thought would protect consumers, uh, even in cases where it's above, you know, the state of Colorado's usury limit, because they saw real benefits and they saw appropriate governance and controls on the, um, you know, on the institutions involved, both the bank and, and a fintech like ourselves. So, in fact, we we actually had a study that demonstrated that consumers in New York, for example, where the Madden case had been decided and where a lot of fintech lenders pulled out after that decision, that consumers in the state of New York were essentially forced to adopt or accept inferior credit products that were higher rate relative than what they what they were able to get when when that market was available to them. And I think Colorado found that to be pretty persuasive as well. So ultimately, really what they saw was that I think what we're doing, if done properly, is good for consumers because it's creating liquidity uh, in these credit markets for you know, middle-class consumers that you know, might have a harder time you know, accessing it otherwise. So, so that's, that's, I think, why they were focused on it. Why it's important is that it could be a roadmap that potentially other states could look to as well. It's much more detailed than the OCC's uh, version of the final rule on true lender. Not to say that 
one's better or worse. I think the OCCs is, is far more, much simpler, but the, um, the standard that we agreed to with Colorado is one that we, we feel very comfortable about working within and one that, you know, we would be, you know, happy to adopt more broadly as well. Uh, it's frankly very close to what we have been doing historically. So there's been a lot of uncertainty over the industry around these issues, both Madden and True Lender and at different times affecting sort of the liquidity within the industry from the standpoint of capital markets and lending. Uh, so, you know, bringing clarity on that issue would be really helpful and important. And we'll see if other states adopt it over time, but it's a good step in that direction for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And we should point out too that the state of Colorado, this is, I, I live in Colorado, so I know it pretty well. You know, the, the attorney general and the governor of Colorado are both Democrats and, uh, you know, there's been, you know, obviously we've got a new Democrat administration in Washington. And, you know, there's sometimes I feel like this is a great case because it, there's a criticism of this, of this, of the bank partnership model because it's all, it's, it's a, it's a way to circumvent. It's a way to kind of charge high interest. And, and I mean, I, I guess I'm, I'm curious about where, how you think about it playing out on the national stage, given that, uh, you know, there is there's definitely some opposition to it and not everyone agreed with uh, what Colorado decided. Yeah, that's true. I think that there's a lot more to come on these issues. I think it's, uh, I think it'll be very interesting to see how the new administration chooses to handle it and sort of what happens from the standpoint of who's put in charge of some of the regulators like the OCC, where I think we've probably seen the most innovation coming more most recently. And I think it's possible even that some of the rulemaking that's been done more recently could come back under review potentially, which is another reason why I think the state decision to the extent the OCC, you know, effectively, you know, pulls back on any of the guidance that they've done within this area. The state case in Colorado could be very helpful as something to point to. And, and you're right about, you know, Colorado being you know, having a democratic administration of its own. And I think it just goes to, um, it goes to the point that, that I was trying to make earlier that these products can be very helpful for the consumers and that there's really good data and information that demonstrates that. And so I think when you see that, that that's the overall effect and the intention of the parties around this, and that you've just got to make sure that there's appropriate governance and controls and that it's being done in a, in an appropriate way from a regulatory standpoint, that there is a way to uh, to have everybody win here is is a good thing, and I think that's what what got recognized in Colorado. So we're hopeful that 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 could be a roadmap. Right, right, okay, okay. Just want to pick up on something. One thing you said there, it's about there's a lot of the, a lot of the knock on this whole model is the consumers are harmed and uh, that this is not good for the consumer. And you just said that you know you've got data that demonstrates that that's not the case. What what kind of data do you have, and uh, and and do you have are you sort of benchmarking the the typical consumer as far as yeah, credit score or credit health or what do you have? Well, specifically, what I was referring to is a study that was um, conducted by an economist named Michael Turner, who's based at Columbia University, and what he studied was this impact from Madden that happened in New York state versus what was happening in Colorado during the same time frame, and just the relative differences in access to credit sort of in those different states based on the prevailing sort of legal uh, regime at the time where in New York, these types of fintech partnerships were no longer occurring, but they had before. So you had a pretty distinct 
data set where you could look at what was right. happening when that product was available, what was happening after it had been taken away. And what was very clear was that essentially people with, you know, within narrow credit score bands, you'd see the, the, the cost of credit increase pretty materially for that credit band after that uh, service with fintech bank partnerships went away. And so I think uh, that study is, you know, publicly available. It was filed as part of the, as part of the court case. And it's pretty powerful in terms of what it shows. It's, it's, it's very, it's very clear. And Dr. Turner is a very well-regarded independent economist. So I think that was pretty persuasive for Colorado in terms of, you know, what we do specifically, it's been a little while since I've looked at the data closely myself, but I know historically we have seen people's credit scores in, increasing over time as they're consistently, you know, making payments on our products. And certainly part of what we try to do as a business is continue to uh, provide better products, lower cost products to, to customers when, when they've demonstrated, you know, the, the wherewithal that, that they should be eligible for that. So what that translates to in, in practice is that we're actually expanding our credit card offering in terms of a range of uh, card products, including one that we have not launched yet, but which will have things like promotional periods with no interest, with rewards and cash back that are more consistent with a higher uh, credit spectrum than where we're at today with our card product that's kind of around 625 FICO. Similarly, on the loan side, you know, we have an active refinancing program where we, uh, for customers that have demonstrated strong payment history, where, you know, we're refinancing customers into lower rate loans on a proactive offering basis. So things like that, which, you know, small steps along the way, but make a big difference in people's lives. So I think we'll continue to, to do those things. And we're excited about the opportunities we think we'll have in the auto space to, to do similar things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So last question, just on that. I mean, as, as we turn the page to 2021, what are the main opportunities you're looking for? You, you've mentioned auto, but um, what, what, where do you see Avant um, you know, moving in, in 2021? Sure. There's a few things that we're most focused on. I've, I've mentioned a couple of these, but Number one is continuing to grow the credit card business. As I said, we're looking to do about 400,000 cards next year. A big part of that is going to be expanding into some new spaces from a customer standpoint. So I mentioned moving up market with with rewards and promotional offers. I think we'll also experiment a little bit uh, further down uh, credit spectrum uh, as well. And uh, we're, we're looking at doing more underwriting in both loan and credit card for thin file customers. So I'd say number one is continue to push and grow the credit card business. Number two, I mentioned we're going to be launching cross-sell capability between those two products to where we're able to offer, you know, the other product, um, a loan to a card customer, a card to a loan customer. That's coming early in, in 2021. And then really making significant progress both on our auto product suite, uh, where ultimately we think there's a big opportunity in uh, refinancing auto loans uh, direct to consumer. Also, point of sale is a big push for next year. So we have a lot on our plates. There's a lot that we want to get done, but we're very excited about uh, how the company's positioned. I think just on that point, you know, Avant has been profitable now for a few years, kind of hovering 
right around break even, and, and a lot of that being a function of growth because we do have our own balance sheet and some of the some of the accounting around that. So the company is in a in a good position from a capital and liquidity standpoint. We're still very cautious on the broader the broader economy and what's happening at the consumer level. So we're we're carefully watching that, but assuming things continue to play out pretty well, we're excited to see some pretty meaningful growth in both our card and loan business next year based on all these investments. Mm -hmm. Okay, James, it's uh, it's been really fascinating chatting with you. Uh, Best of luck for next year and thanks for coming on the show. Peter, it was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Okay, see ya. All right, take care. You know, Avant is, I think, a, a great example of a company that started in unsecured consumer loans and has expanded out into other areas. Um, we've, we've talked about credit cards. They're becoming a, a decent-sized credit card provider. We, you know, auto loans, um, obviously, they... Uh, James has talked about, and you know what we really what they're doing is they've got a, a certain customer. Uh, they're trying to trying to serve them in multiple ways, and uh, and serving them with 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 multiple financial products like traditional financial institutions. And you know I wrote about this a few weeks back, where I really see a blurring of the lines between traditional financial institutions and fintechs. That really it's already started to happen, obviously, but fintechs are becoming diversified financial institutions, and banks are becoming far more tech enabled. And I think you know even James even teased that there might be a bank offerings down the road. We didn't get a chance to chat about that. But you can, it, it makes my point that they have their market, they've got multiple products, and they really want to be able to serve this customer really well. And, uh, and I think that's what su- successful fintechs will be doing this decade. Anyway, before I sign off, I uh, just want to wish everybody a, a Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah, however you celebrate the holidays. This is our last one before Christmas. Uh, thank you all so much. Wishing you a safe and happy holiday season. And on that note, I will sign off. I very much appreciate you listening, and I'll catch you next time. Bye. Today's episode was sponsored by Lendit Fintech Digital, the new online community for financial services innovators. Today's challenges are extraordinary with the upheaval affecting all areas of finance. More than ever before, we need to come together as an industry to learn from each other and make sense of this new world. Join Lendit Fintech Digital to connect and learn all year long from your peers and from the fintech experts. Sign up today at digital.lendit.com.